Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This time of year is seen by some as the season of the witch. Tourists flock to Salem, Massachusetts, thought of as the epicenter of the New England witch trials. But the first woman hanged as a witch was in Connecticut, nearly 45 years before the infamous Massachusetts hangings began. Coming up, we hear from the Connecticut Historical Society about what few documents tell us about this period of hysteria that led to women and some men being executed in the Connecticut colony in the 17th century. First joining us on Zoom is Leslie Lindenauer, a history professor at Western Connecticut State University. Her focus is on gender and religious culture in early America. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Leslie, I I mentioned the outsized focus on Salem's witch trials. uh, But when we think about the history in Connecticut, what are some of the common misconceptions about what happened here? I I think that the, the biggest misconception is that Um, people tend to ignore what happened in Connecticut in favor of focusing on Salem. And in fact, of the almost 100 cases of witchcraft that went through the full judicial process, um, almost half of them occurred in Connecticut. Can you remind our listeners about the first woman hanged in Windsor? Sure. Her name was Alice Young. We don't really know all that much about her. Um, in fact, it's, it's interesting because there's been this constant sort of disagreement between the folks in Wethersfield. Um, Mary Johnson in Wethersfield may have been the first witch accused, but her case took a number of years. Um, Alice Young uh, was married. They had a daughter. She was accused and tried and hanged in Hartford, actually, in 1647. You know, I remember talking with Beth Caruso, who is a Connecticut resident, has written a historical fiction based on Alice Young called One of Windsor. And she talked about what was happening during that period. And there's actually a flu epidemic. And so when we think about um, the, the factors that led to some women and men being accused, can you talk about what was happening in those towns at the time? And the you know, the emphasis and uh, the fact that the Puritan culture, you know, how that led to some of the people being accused. Yes. Uh, I mean, fear is certainly an element and probably uh, the most important element in in these accusations, fear and this need to project that fear onto or othering people in a community. And disease is one of those things that caused fear with very little um, to, you know, very few means to control disease. You know, the, the distance between uh, religion and seeking sort of magical remedies uh, was fairly narrow. And uh, anywhere you could find agency, and some of that agency included, inclu- 
you know, accusing your neighbors of witchcraft. It's fear of disease, but it's also fear of death from other causes. Your fear of death if you're a woman, a childbirth, you know, a childbirthing woman. Fear of of indigenous populations that had been decimated over the you know the first few generations in the 17th century. Uh, but you know they weren't that far from a war uh, in 1675-1676. So those sorts of fears generated discontent and and in a community may result in accusations of witchcraft. When I mentioned that some men were also hanged, uh, were they often the husbands of these women accused, Leslie? Yeah, of of the 22 men who were accused and went through the judicial process, um, over half of them were related to women who had also been accused of witchcraft. I mentioned earlier that your focus is on gender and religious culture in early America. And is that how you got pulled into, uh, you know, studying, uh, you know, the, how witches uh, were thought of and, uh, you know, how it still is seen in our culture today, but, you know, departs from, you know, what we know from the historical record? Yeah, that's exactly how I got pulled into it and looking for ways that um, I mean, the common parlance was that religion, and it's absolutely true, particularly Puritan religion, you know, contributed to a, the patriarchy. Uh, but I was looking for ways that women found agency through their religion and didn't find many, although it's interesting to note that accusations of witchcraft, well, <clears throat> over half of those came from other women against other women. Anyway, that... Um, that pulled me into the topic and I proceeded from there and became as interested in the changing perceptions of the witch over time into the 18th and 19th centuries. I assume you visited Salem, Massachusetts. Can you talk about, you know, just how people flock to this town, especially this time of year, thinking about, you know, the epicenter of the New England witch trials and Again, maybe tying it into you know what we see in popular culture and how witches are portrayed. Sure. Uh, yes, I've visited Salem several <laughs> times. I've taken students there before, and um, you know it's a really compelling place. It's a compelling place in part because there's there's this incredible history beyond the history of of witchcraft in that town. Um, it, you know, one of the things that I have grappled with over the years is that it's a town that labels itself the witch city and thousands of people visit most of them in October without really having a, an understanding of the fact that, you know, the, the colony murdered, you know, 20 people in a very brief period of time in that place um, in, in 1692, 1693. So, um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting place because there are now, it's, it's also a place where there are practitioners, where there are people who, who identify, self-identify as Wiccan or pagan or cultists. And um, it makes it a destination that deserves more complex attention than it receives. Mm. That's interesting, uh, because when you think about the number that you just mentioned, I believe in the Connecticut colony, was it 35 residents that we know of that were hanged here? Four, uh, the, uh, there were, no, there were all together before Salem, there were 16 people hanged. Mm. 
there were 43 who went through the full judicial process. I see. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't. Although when you think about it and those numbers in towns, that number in the population of, you know, just hundreds as opposed to thousands, it's still a fairly significant impact. Again, you're hearing on Zoom Leslie Lindenauer, history professor at Western Connecticut State University. As we talk about Connecticut's history in the witch trials, if you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. So I mentioned the, the Puritan era earlier, and when you look at your research, uh, Leslie, uh, the themes of sexism that define the witch hunts, how did that continue after this era? And when you look today, whether it's in art or in literature? Well, I, I don't think there's any question as we you know, look at the world around us today that some of the same themes that emerged as part of Puritan culture are still with us today. And the response to those themes, um, you know, have developed and changed over time. Uh, the, in the Puritan culture, this idea that a woman's body was weak and therefore, and she was vulnerable, made her more susceptible to temptation by the devil. And I think, you know, while there isn't the same emphasis on temptation to the devil in 2021, I think this idea that women are inherently weak and need protection um, from their own evil still exists you know we're still you know confronting attempts to control our identity and our bodies based on the way we feel you know based on the way people feel women need that sort of protection uh, when we also think about uh, connecticut's connection there's of course the witch of blackbird pond uh, when you think about how witches are portrayed or some of these uh, stereotypes uh, that story in particular, what stands out to you? Oh, I, I love that story and I've taught it in the past. It's a really odd little book. I love that it's a Connecticut story and it's clear that it represents, you know, in the 1950s, an attempt in sort of young adult literature to rehabilitate the witch. Those attempts started happening in the 18th century and through the 19th century, by the 20th century, books like Witch of Blackbird Pond um, really make an attempt and, and in fact succeed to rehabilitate the witch, to make that person who's accused of witchcraft in the 17th century, uh, someone who was a victim of in fact Puritan intolerance. Um, and, and in that respect, there's truth to that. There's truth to the witch of Blackbird Pond. It's, it is, um, women were more vulnerable in the 17th century to accusations um, and the, and there is no evidence that any of the people accused in Connecticut self-identified as witches in the 17th century. So there is that thread that carries us through from the 17th into the 20th and 21st century. I understand you also have a theory about the evil stepmother uh, as we think about the new target in popular culture. Tell us about that, Leslie. Sure. I found in my research that there's a transition uh, and, you know, is it causal? I'm not entirely sure. It's certainly cultural. But as soon as the witchcraft trials were shut down at the end of the 17th century, which is not to say that they disappear altogether, um, the, the, the target, the witch as a scapegoat for fear 
you know, dissipated. And I found that pretty rapidly by the 18th century in popular culture, it, um, the evil stepmother emerged as the focus of, of, you know, everyone's fear, mostly in popular culture, in novels and in articles, in prescriptive magazines. She emerged uh, in ways that were very similar to accusations of witchcraft, this idea that it's a woman who has very few biological ties to children and who is therefore capable of evil intent with regard to children. Um, and that turns out to be a really compelling through line um, between the witch and the evil stepmother. When you teach your students at Western, you know, I'm curious well, when they sign up for your class, you know, um, the things that they're learning, how it changes their um, impressions of history, or even when we talk about um, the representation that has um, you know, evolved uh, through the years, Leslie, I'm wondering what you can tell us a little bit about their, their perspective and what they share with you. Sure. You know, there's always, there are always a handful of students, um, mostly young women, although occasionally a couple of young men who join the class because they want to be able to self-identify as Wiccan or Pagan. <clears throat> and, and that's great. I love that. Um, I think that the, the search for their own history takes them back to a time where they want to believe that the people who were accused in the 1600s were witches. And, um, and so they have to grapple with the fact that for the most part, they're <laughs> There, there are other reasons why women were targeted, and it wasn't necessarily because, in fact, it wasn't because they identified as witches. Um, so they have to grapple with that. But I think that once we get past that, or once they start to um, understand that, the ability to think about the way perceptions of witchcraft and witches and who they are um, is something that they find really compelling. You've been hearing Westcom Professor Leslie Linden Atler here on Where We Live, a history professor at Western Connecticut State University. Her focus is on gender and religious culture in early America. Leslie, thank you for joining us. Sounds like we need to sign up for your class. You're most welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, coming up, we're going to hear from two Connecticut witches about their work to reinvent the term and build a community. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. When you think of a witch, what comes to mind? There's representations in popular culture, like Hogwarts Professor McGonagall, but there are people, including in our state, who practice modern-day witchcraft. Joining us now on the phone is Michelle Piercy. She lives in East Haven, and she founded the Black Hat Society of Connecticut group. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about the Black Hat Society and and what uh, led you to practice witchcraft. Um, I started the Black Hat Society back in 2018 because I noticed that there was nothing like that in Connecticut. So I was, you know, figured I'd try to start it up and get people to um, come in and just gather and, and educate, help educate the community and just positive awareness about the craft and just to gather and do like community service. Um, I started practicing when I was younger, but then, then stopped. And then maybe about 10 years ago, I fully went into it. So, yes. Which has been a lot. We talked about the misconceptions earlier, and so did you encounter a lot of that um, in your community or just from others when they hear that you practice witchcraft? They ask ask you, what is that? What does it mean? Well, they've asked. I've um, raised two young girls in the East Haven public school system, so a couple times they had to deal with a couple things, but they, they also educated, tried to educate as much as possible. Um... I really, luckily, didn't have a problem too much. Well, that's good to hear. So when you created the Facebook group for the Black Hat Society, uh, you left it pretty open-minded and open-ended, rather, uh, saying that uh, this group is for religious like-minded people. Explain that for us. Yes. Who who would ever like to come in the pagan community to gather and to learn and and to share their stories and help us in any way to to just bring awareness to to the word even the word witch to make it where it's not how it used to be and and just to thrive in that way mm. Also with us on Zoom is Miss Faith McCann. She's a practicing witch owner and instructor of enchantment, enchantment school for the magical arts and witch shop that's in Manchester. Miss Faith, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I understand you've been practicing for almost four decades. So tell us uh, again about um, you know what led you uh, to uh, modern day witchcraft, and then you know the mission about you opening your shop. Um, I've always been a witch. I mean, it, when I was twelve years old, I was you know in the woods casting spells, and I'm not quite sure what started me off, but um, I grew up on a farm. Um, surrounded by orchards and fields and nature. So it was always very natural for me. And um, I, I got a book, I think, um, in my teens. And um, 
It uh, was one of the very earliest books that were very big and dry and basically told me about uh, the magical world. And it was like, this is this is what I am. But um, in 2004, we decided to start a school for the magical arts um, because there really were no schools. Um, there were a few witch shops, some, some in Salem, one in New York City. Um, but as far as I could find, there were no actual schools, no uh, some of the shops had little classes occasionally, um, you know, on a weekend or something. But, you know, I wanted to start a full-fledged adult college-level um, school um, like Hogwarts, where you can go and, you know, learn how to do the spells and use all the ingredients and make the potions and um, use the candles and use everything uh, that we use. Um, I don't teach Wicca, um, which is a religion specifically. I, I really, you can practice any religion you want. Uh, what I do is I focus on the physics, the science of witchcraft. Mm. So tell me about the people who come to your shop, because earlier we talked about misconceptions uh, based on, mm. you know, more popular culture versus, you know, historical record. And I'm just curious, you know, what some of your um, encounters have been with people who are open minded, are interested in this. But do the misconceptions drive them uh, to your shop and then you are, um, you know, helping them? better understand uh, witchcraft, well, modern day witchcraft initially, today? Yeah, initially when I first opened, I'd have the occasional individual that um, probably um, had other issues um, come in with, you know, the Bible and screaming about, you know, um, hell and damnation. But, you know, we gently brought them to the door and wished them well. <laughs> but um, I'm also... Um, uh, martial, well, I was for 15 years a martial arts instructor, so I'm good with that. Um, <laughs> I give you my own bouncer. <laughs> but uh, um, everyone that comes to our store, whether um, they're lay people, which is most of my clientele, um, you would think they're pagans, but really not. They're people in the community, just like the ancient witch that comes when they're having problems. And, you know, they really don't know where else to go. And they're kind of desperate and they really need help. And that's what we we provide. And right now um, we're finding that over 70 percent of our clientele are marginalized um, groups in our society from the LGBTQ community, um, you know, women, um, you know, the black community, the Latino community, the Muslim community, a lot of people that are just, they want a safe place that where they feel welcome. Uh, they come in to say hi, they want to see what it's about. On the front lawn, we have two signs, one that says peace, one that says shalom. Um, we are welcome to everybody. Um, we are not specific um, to, like I said, any one religion. We welcome everyone because witchcraft is a science. And if you've ever burned a candle in a Catholic church, you've done magic. <laughs> I know that's not going to make a lot of people happy, but um, magic goes back thousands of years. And if you've ever blown out candles on your birthday cake, you've done one of the oldest candle spells known to man. It goes back about 5,000 years to ancient Greece to the Temple of Artemis. Mm. So um, there's magic everywhere. Most people uh, just don't know it. Miss <laughs> Faith, you mentioned witchcraft as a science. Explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Um, it's found in, um, it's basically physics, and um, I could go into great detail as I do with my students. My program is a year-long program, and it gets deep into quantum physics, and um, where what we um, create 
appears magical and unbelievable and you know how could this be but um if you understand quantum physics um you know it, it's the same thing it, you know if you for instance look at um a surface under a microscope a high-powered microscope a solid surface looks solid but the atoms are actually very far away um, there's more space than there is solid surface well with magic that's the same thing we create things which seem impossible, but learning how to put everything together, working um, magic properly, putting all the pieces, building the foundation, um, and then all of a sudden things start to happen. You manifest your reality. We manifest it every single day. Unfortunately, people are better at manifesting the negative because they believe the negative is going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. It's going to be a bad winter. It's going to be a bad week. We're really good at manifesting that. It's much harder for people to believe that they have the ability to man you know, manifest really positive things. And that's what we do. We try not to feed into the negative we believe that we're just as able to create the positive and it all falls into the quantum physics um you know area and uh scientists every now and then come out with the discovery um that witches have known about for centuries um but we're good with that <laughs> miss faith uh, miss faith you mentioned um, people who are marginalized uh, often find your shop and they come in yes. and ask you questions can you talk more about that the, when you said that people often we focus on the bad and do people feel like they're cursed and they want a solution okay. can you talk a little bit about how you you uh, talk with them about that yes um you know when people talk about curses and something bad has happened to me and stuff. The first thing I, I talk to them is one of my, my very first lessons um, is, you know, when you talk about being cursed, I tell them there are no such thing as curses. And they really don't want to hear that. Sometimes people are vested in that because they're like, no, all the crap that's happening in my life can't possibly be me. And I'm like, um, well, nobody has cursed you because if you believe what you send out comes back to you and they're like, well, yes, um, because that's basically what we do. I explained to them, it's it's like gravity. Again, the physics. If I give you a stone and you drop it a million times, it's always going to hit the floor. But if we send out a love spell, it comes back to you. You send out a money spell, it comes back to you. You send out a protection spell, it comes back to you. Well, then why, if you send out a curse at somebody that you're angry at, you, you dislike, it, are, are the physics going to change? all of a sudden and not come back to you. It's just gonna go to that other person. The physics are always, that rock is always gonna hit the floor. So we don't send out curses to other people. It just isn't gonna work because it's going to come back to you. That's, that's an example of the physics I was talking about. Yeah. So what we do is we send out love and it comes back to us. We bless those that are angry at us, that hate us, that are, you know, um, upset with us. Or, you know, we just neutralize it. We just stay away from them. We don't do evil things to other people. And when people, this is a really important point. People ask, are you a white witch or a black witch? There is no white or black. I ask them, take a pen. Is that pen holy or evil? And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, if I write a love spell, or a love letter, that's a really beautiful thing. If I stab you with that pen, not so lovely. Again, is that pen holy or evil? It's not, it's simply a tool. Witchcraft is not holy or evil. It's not black or white, it's a tool. And it's the person 
that is wielding the tool that you have to look at. Just like anything else in our society, it's what the person is doing with it. What what are your actions that, that you have to look at? Miss Faith, we just have a, a couple minutes left. Uh, you know, again, we're we're talking with you. Uh, you know, and Michelle, of course, uh, the month of Halloween, and we talked earlier about misconceptions. That does that rub you the wrong way that people are only thinking about witches during this time of year? And you know, what are some parting words for our listeners? Uh, well, if I, I could finish up, um, yeah, it does, um, because people only think of us as caricatures at this time. I mean, I don't even think actually that we're even part of the marginalized societies I mentioned before. Um, people don't even think we're real. Um, people don't feel that, you know, Samhain or Halloween is even a religious holiday. And uh, as far as talking about the New England witch panics earlier, I do a, a lecture once a year in September about the uh, New England witch panics. And I've started a um, exhibit in the front of my store um, that'll be there year round about the uh, 37 uh, people put to death in New England. And each one is, has a story. Um, and um, there's a lot of information, actually more than you, you are aware of about every single person, simply because there's not a lot of documents about them. Right. But every family has done individual research that I've been able to find. So That's I'm a great trend. Uh, Ms. Faith, that's a great transition coming up. We're going to be talking to the Connecticut Historical Society about the few documents that are out there and a woman in Connecticut who has traced uh, her family history uh, to one of the women accused uh, in the Connecticut colony. What a pleasure to hear from you. Ms. Faith McCann, again, thank you for your time. And Michelle Piercy, who is founder of the Black Hat Society on Facebook. Thank you both. We appreciate it. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier, we talked about the history of Connecticut's witch trials, the role gender played. After the break, we'll look at how the few records about Connecticut's witch trials still manage to tell us so much. First, have you financially supported Connecticut Public Radio yet? It's our fall membership campaign. Support the shows you listen to, like Where We Live, by pledging your support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. And thanks for listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. My name is Lee Newton. I am here with Matt Dwyer. And we would love for you to join us today as a member during our October Fun Drive. This is an excellent opportunity for you to show your support for the local shows like Where We Live that you love so much. You can do that just by making a contribution. You can join us as a sustainer, give a little amount every month. That's a great way to give. And do it today. It's so easy. We've got wonderful ways to thank you, and uh, we're going to be telling you about that in just a moment. But go to the phone, 1-800-584-2788, or you can log on to ctpublic.org. Click on that Donate button in the top right corner. And uh, I'm so excited to have Matt with me this morning. It's my, my first ever pledge drive here. <laughs> so <Yay>! exciting. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm nervous. I'm nervous about this pledge drive. Will people call up? Will they really call? Please call. Okay. So yeah, so it's 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 my, my first time here. And and to celebrate, we have a very, very special uh, gift that we're giving away, David Sedaris tickets. 
uh, and I, I, I shouldn't say giving away. You have to you have to actually make a pledge that to get true. them. That is true. It's one hundred and fifteen dollars uh, credit card only. Uh, that that gets you uh, one ticket to David Sedaris. Tuesday, October 19 is the show at the Bushnell in Hartford. It's a 7.30 p.m. show. Uh, but you have to have to call in and, and or go to the website and, and make your pledge, you know, now because tomorrow is is the, the deadline for that. That's sort of the, the cutoff right. for that. So we have to get that in soon. So I am very, very excited about my, my first ever pledge. <laughs> Yay! Yes. So please, if you're not making a contribution for Connecticut Public Radio, please make it for Matt right now because this is an exciting moment for him. I need positive reinforcement. <laughs> I really do need positive reinforcement. <laughs> we, we all do, I think. Yes. And Matt, I don't know if you've ever seen David Sedaris uh, in one of these uh, you know, speaking events, but it is so amazing because he's going to read from his latest book, Calypso. But then he also gives you kind of a little preview of things that he's working on. And it's so fascinating. You get to hear it first. And a lot of what you hear in the show, you know, is probably going to end up in his next book. So it's a really rare opportunity. If you would like to see it, please support it right now. Support David Sedaris and Connecticut Public Radio at the same time. Go to ctpublic.org or call us at 1-800-584-2788. But, of course, the real reason that we hope that you're going to support us right now is because you love where we live. Lucy Nalpathanchel, an amazing host. She has an incredible group of producers behind her. And they just give you such a great insight into so many different issues that are important to us here in Connecticut. This is tailor-made for you. And uh, if you appreciate it, then do support it today. That's how it happens. Join us right now at ctpublic.org. Click on the Donate button or call us at 1-800-584-2788. Absolutely. I, I produced Where We Live uh, for a while and, and worked on some of the Wednesday shows uh, here. Um, and it, it, having it that hour-long chunk of time you know, with, with very few breaks gives you a little extra time to talk to people. I know just reaching out and talking to, to politicians or newsmakers, sometimes they 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 would almost be surprised that, oh, you, you want to have us on for 40 minutes? Really? You know, like they're used to just sort of short, <laughs> quick interviews. And you know, having that longer chunk of time gives Lucy more time to sort of get into some of the details and kind of drill down on, on some important issues. Um, you know, like they, they just recently did a, a show on uh, women and, you know, having drinking problems, especially during the, the pandemic. Um, you know, they've done shows on domestic violence, just some very right. serious, very important issues that, that, that need to be talked about in depth. You know, it, it's not enough to just sometimes to just do a, a quick hit on a story. You, you need to sort of slow down and, and talk about them. Right. Some more. Dig into it. Well, absolutely. And Matt, you know, you, uh, you know, I've certainly worked in commercial radio, you're working in public radio now, and you know the difference. And there's nothing wrong with either way. But this is a crazy system that we have. I mean, it's wonderful, because it gives us the time to really give you the opportunity to hear those stories to dig into those issues. But at the same time, we are bringing you an amazing product for free, and coming to you later saying, is this something you appreciate and put a dollar value on it? I mean, that is an insane business model, but it's how we do it here at Public Radio, and we wouldn't want it any other way. You can join us right now. Just go to the phone, go online, make that contribution. It can be 1-800-584-2788, or you can go to ctpublic.org. Join us right now. Support where we live, and thanks so much. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Earlier, we talked about witch hangings that happened in the Connecticut colony long before the Salem executions. What documents exist in our state that help us better understand that time period? Joining us now on Zoom is Natalie Bellinger, who manages adult programs at the Connecticut Historical Society, including programs about Connecticut's witch trials. Natalie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us about the documents uh, that exist, that tell us about that period of time in 1647 when Alice Young of Windsor was hanged. Well, actually, Alice Young is a great starting point to answer this question because there's really not much. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's how we know Alice Young's was hanged for witchcraft. There are two known references to her in the historical record. One is a diary kept by Matthew Grant of Windsor in which he writes on the flyleaf, the date, and then Alice Young's was hanged today, right? And the other other piece of evidence we have for her execution is a diary kept by John Winthrop, who was the governor of Massachusetts. In his diary, he writes, around the same time, one of Windsor was hanged for a witch. So those two pieces of evidence together are all we know for certain in the historical record about what ended Alice Young's life. That's really interesting when we think about the scarcity, um, but when we think also about the legal structure that existed then and these claims that were unfounded and how they worked their way through that, what can you tell us about that? Well, Puritans really were very legally minded. They loved the law they, and they were very litigious. So we do have court records from the general court of Connecticut, although they're spotty. Um, there are some instances where court records are missing for several years. Um, Connecticut is lucky to have this repository called the Samuel Willis Papers. Samuel Willis was a magistrate who was active throughout most of the witch trials in Connecticut history. And his papers um, contain a lot of depositions um, and other writings about this about these these cases and they're at the well they're actually divided between the Connecticut State Library and Brown University so if you want to look into these witch claims you have to really look at lots of different sources um, and you have to be prepared to look at different repositories um, but what we see in 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 the records that survive is that although to us these claims might appear unfounded right Um, So, for example, when someone testifies that, as in the case of Catherine Harrison of Wethersfield in the 1670s, that I woke one night and there was a dog sitting on my chest and the dog had the face of Catherine Harrison. Um, You and I might not believe that, right? But to the people of the time, they were willing to accept that a, a witness might be incorrect, that a witness might be mistaken, that a witness might be making something up. And so they come up with ways to figure that out. And as in the case of Catherine Harrison, um, she was actually convicted of witchcraft, but then the conviction was set aside. And the governor of Connecticut at the time, John Winthrop Jr., he pushed other um, other colonial leaders to really think about the standards of evidence that they were accepting. And one of the things that comes out of Catherine Harrison's case is that the colony decides that going forward, you would have to have two people simultaneously see that spectral vision in order to use that piece of evidence in court. So two people have to see 
the dog with the head of Katherine Harrison at the same time and be able to testify uh, to it. And once that standard is adopted, um, which prosecutions and convictions in Connecticut become very, very difficult? That's really interesting uh, to hear. Again, Natalie Bellinger manages adult programs at the Connecticut Historical Society. When we think about the people that were accused, I wanted to bring into the discussion now Marjorie Jennings, who created a digital archive of her family history in Connecticut, and in the process learned about her links to Connecticut's witch trials. Marjorie, welcome. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. So, so tell me how you learned about how your family is tied to one of the accused in, in the Connecticut colony. Yes, I didn't. I had no idea. Um, I was finding old documents and photos and creating a web page that kind of grew like crazy uh, in the, oh, the mid-aughts, I guess. And one of my genealogist cousins said, did you know you had a witch in the family or accused witch, I should say. Mm. And um, I found this, the Samuel Willis papers at that time, uh, a couple of them were in the Connecticut Public Library. I didn't at that time see digital, digital versions of the ones that are at Brown. So this has been, it's a great time. I don't have to go to Brown University and rummage around in their archives. This stuff more and more is being uh, uh, transcribed and put online so that I have um, the, uh, some of the documents regarding the trial of trials, plural of Elizabeth Sager. Uh, she is very vocal and she, she was either imprisoned or decided not to leave and stayed and argued about her case. And I have a feeling she was a piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, she either she was t panicking and just throwing stuff out or maybe toying with them. Because when someone accused her of flying, she said, well, if I was flying, it's because he made me do it. I mean, who does that when their life is at stake? Mm. <laughs> you mentioned this website. Uh, so can you share that with um, us? Yes, it's on Seeger Mountain, all one word, S-E-G-E-R Mountain dot org. And um, it started out mostly about my grandmother and her father cohabiting a house and keeping parallel diaries in 1915. And it was like they were living on different planets. Um, he was a hardworking farmer and she was social, upbeat, uh, having a great time. And it's, and while she did, she was doing chores and things, but a totally different take on life that generational change um and then it grew people other cousins found things in the attics and gave them to me and uh, a great aunt had labeled a lot of family photos thank heavens and i scanned those and put them in and then transcribed some stuff so that people who might be searching for specific information about domestic life in the 19th century could search for words rather than just having an image which is critical mm -hmm. when you're when you're trying to broaden access for people. And another reason I'm very grateful for the stuff at Brown and um, at the Connecticut Public Library mm. being digital. I wanted to go back uh, to uh, Natalie Bellinger. When we talk about mm -hmm. documents and what people can uh, glean uh, from their family history, yeah. how do you respond a little, Natalie, to Marjorie's story? 
I think it's it would be a lot of fun to have someone in your in your family tree who was involved in these trials. And um, it is interesting because when you look at these documents, some so much of this is very dry. And then you get these little glimpses of, as Marjorie said, personality popping out. Elizabeth Seeger <laughs> was accused several different times and always sort of manages to to beat the rap. And and right. I mean, there was a case of uh, a man much later, a little bit later on, who um, was um, who who gets accused of witchcraft because he says, "I'm going to do I'm going to do a spell. I'm going to make the devil appear." When he's out drinking with his buddies, <laughs> and they say to him, um, "You know," and then he gets in trouble for this, and he says, "Well, I don't I don't want you to think that where there's smoke, there's fire," um, and you do get these these glimpses of of personality and you know perhaps there were some people in the community who were skeptical about witchcraft or or at least skeptical about how common it was right um yeah so it, it can it can be a lot of fun to look at these sources uh, natalie before we run out of time I, I believe there'll be some upcoming programs for residents to, to learn more about this period of time in the connecticut colony can you talk about that yeah, so actually the Connecticut Historical Society does programs. Um, we, we do a traveling program about witchcraft in Connecticut, and we are actually doing a public version of, of this program on the evening of October 27th. So you can tune in and learn um, more. It's, it's an online program. You can find out about it at our website, chs.org, and um, you know learn a, a little bit about the breadth and the and the, the the scope of witch hunting in Connecticut, and also a few um, personal or not personal but individual stories of people caught up in this. Well, the Connecticut Historical Society is a great resource for our state, and we loved hearing from you, Natalie Bellinger, who manages adult programs there. Thank you, Natalie, for your time. Thank you. Uh, Marjorie Jennings, uh, you know, you what an interesting story, this digital archive of your family history, learning about uh, the links to Connecticut's witch trials. Any advice for people listening who are curious about, you know, doing this kind of work themselves? What can you tell them? Um, it helps if, um, if you have some genealogical info, uh, but Google is your friend, <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, I think what I like to also tell people is when you're cleaning out granny's attic or mom's house and you find paper, don't toss it immediately. It may seem irrelevant to you or baffling, but sometimes there's very interesting stuff, old diaries. Um, that's all first person history. And if you can save it, if you can consult with the local historical society, um, it's, it's critical because that's what we get. That's how I got a lot of this stuff. Although the thing about women back in the uh, 17th century is they're almost invisible. They're somebody's wife, Goody Sigurd, have you. And it's only because of these court things that I know anything at all about her other than her name. Um, well, Marjorie, the, those are so great the notoriety tips. is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are great tips uh, for our listeners uh, as we think about the documents that we may have uh, in our homes from our families. Marjorie Jennings, thank you for your time. And if you, our listeners oh, have time, you. check out onsagermountain.org. We'll be sure to share a link uh, at where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Now it's Connecticut Public Radio's fall membership campaign. We talk about a lot of different topics here on the show. We learn 
learn a lot from the stories of our residents like Marjorie. Support where we live with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. And you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll be supporting it as well. All you have to do is call 1-800-584-2788 or visit ctpublic.org, click on the Donate button, and make a contribution to support this great local show. We're so proud of it, Where We Live, and uh, we hope you'll do that right now. I am Lee Newton, and I'm joined by Matt Dwyer. Hello, <laughs> and and I have a story to tell, Yeah, or, or at least that I will attempt to tell. I hope I, hope I get it <laughs> <Okay>. right. <laughs> So the show is where we live. Near where I live, there's a house. And in that house, there's there are people, but there also is a chihuahua and a German shepherd. Mm. And sometimes when you walk by the house, the two dogs come running out and they're, ruff, 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 yap, 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 yap. And the chihuahua, obviously, it's a chihuahua. It's, it's teeny, teeny, tiny. Right. But it's getting right in there. It's got just as much spirit as that great big German shepherd. And, and I think that, that maybe... The torture analogy that I'm trying to make here is that, that if you're out there and you're thinking, well, yeah, I can't make a, a big donation, what difference does it make? Just think of that little chihuahua. You know, you and, and you can just give a few bucks a month and you're and you're you've got the spirit, you're getting in there, you're getting right in, you're doing it. That's right. I love that. I love that. If you are, you know, you think, you know, my as you say, my contribution won't make a difference. You are wrong. It really does make an incredible difference. You know, we've really been emphasizing sustainers. We love our sustainers so much. And even folks who just give $5 a month um, make such a difference in the future of our planning, of what we can do, of the shows that we can produce. So if you can step up, $5 a month is a great way to join us. We also have other ways to thank you. We've got an amazing thing. Uh, David Sedaris is coming to the Bushnell. We have tickets. So give a gift of $115 on a credit card and you can see David Sedaris. You'll get one single ticket to his show on Tuesday, October 19th, 7.30 p.m. at the Bushnell. He is going to be reading from his latest book and also giving you a little preview of some things that he's working on. So do it right now. Here's the number again, 1-800-584-2788. Or visit ctpublic.org. Yes, I, I read one of his books a while back, uh, When You Are Engulfed in Flames, which mm-hmm. is the, the one that has like a skeleton uh, smoking a cigarette on the <laughs> yes. cover, uh, which I think sort of fits for him. I think part of it was talking about his his, his cigarette smoking and, and his life with his husband. And, mm-hmm. and it, it just sort of showcased kind of his sort of unique sense of humor is slightly twisted, a little bit <laughs> off, but, but still very, very funny. Uh, so anyway, uh, th- to make your, your donation, go to WNPR, look for the red Donate Now button. Uh, you can also select monthly sustaining. Uh, phone number 800-584-2788. Thank you very much.